The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we are going to be speaking to a journalist, a writer at the Christian Post, and this is Brandon Showalter. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So good to be with you. It's a pleasure. So I've done a very brief intro there, Brandon, but please introduce yourself for those who do not know. My name is Brandon Showalter. I am an investigative journalist and podcaster at the Christian Post and have been so since the summer of 2016. I've covered the covered a number of things, but have focused extensively on the developments of the global uh, developments with regard to gender ideology. It's been a big focus of mine, but I do report on other things too. But that's been a tremendous focus of mine of late, especially in this last year. I hear that, man. Before we get into your work, tell me a little bit about yourself and your background. How did you even get into the world of journalism? Where are you from? All that good stuff. Born and raised in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and I swore I'd never live and work in the Washington, D.C. area, but I guess God has a sense of humor. Uh, and I just had an opportunity. I was looking to do something different back in 2015, 2016, was working three jobs to make ends meet. In fact, I was a janitor in a church in early 2015. And I was thinking about what I was going to do next. And while I was mopping floors and scrubbing toilets, I just had this idea that I was going to write an essay about what it was like being a church janitor. So I submitted it to this blog site that I knew. And that turned into me having my own blog for a very short time. But then those blogs served as the writing samples for a career in reporting when that opportunity came my way. And the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> That's so yeah, interesting. Yeah. So, Shenandoah Valley, countryside, salt of the earth people. I'm I'm from. Uh, went to college there. Recently finished a master's degree at the Catholic University of America here in D.C. But I've returned to reporting after that. That's awesome, man. And how did you get involved with the Christian Post? 
I'm on a listserv uh, alumni network that I'm a part of. I saw they were looking for reporters, and I was so desperate to make a change career-wise that I thought, I'm just going to apply and see what happens. That was literally it. I didn't know if I was even cut out for it and had no previous journalism experience, but I just dove right in. Okay. And the topic that you're now writing on and discussing on your podcast, you said, is the gender ideology issue. So how did that come onto your radar? And perhaps even more importantly, how is that something that you decided to delve into the conversation with? Well, it's kind of an interesting story because my first day on the job during my trial period was the day after the Orlando Pulse nightclub shooting. Mm-hmm. when all those those men were murdered uh, that, that night. And so I was thrown into covering all things LGBT right away. But I soon realized that everything had shifted away from gay and lesbian issues to transgender and queer and non-binary and all this. And I noticed how language was being manipulated within the news media. Men were being referred to as she and her, you know, and and vice versa. Uh, Women were being referred to as he and him. And I saw all of this ideology permeating the first draft of history. And I really saw how insidious the language was. And I didn't know much about transgenderism, but it was alarming to me because I was so confused even reading a news article. And I was like, well, who are they talking about? Because it's a male, but it's being referred to as she. And there was another woman being referred to in the body of the article. And so I, I couldn't even keep it straight. Mm-hmm. And I, then I sort of realized what was going on, but it was late 2016 and early 2017 when I learned that this wasn't just about Laverne Cox on the cover of Time Magazine or Bruce Jenner on the cover of Vanity Fair. There was an entire apparatus within the medical system, the medicalization of gender, particularly in youth. And when I learned what the blockers were, what puberty blockers were, I often say this, something inside me snapped. And I just, I'll never forget the visceral feeling of horror that I had that first day when I learned what they were. And I walked back to the newsroom and I thought my head was going to spin off my body. Just the lack of medical ethics that you would do that to a child in pursuit of a physiological impossibility just knocked the wind out of me. Mm-hmm. And so I just knew that I had to dive in and that the Christian Post, my publication, was going to have to scrutinize this ideology since the legacy press wouldn't. Uh, thankfully, that's not the only thing that I have been assigned to cover, but it has, as I said, been a, a, ma- a major focus. Uh, I view it as one of the worst medical scandals in history. I hear that. So you really found, you really dove into the issue in 2016 and 2017. So this is something that, you know, I again, like, like yourself, I've been very aware of it from around, I want to say around that same time, actually, around yeah. 2016 or so. 2015, 2016. But it's one of those issues that's only come onto a lot of people's radar, I think, in the last one to two years, at least the extent um, that it's going to. I think that people previously thought, okay, Mm -hmm. this is something that, um, you know, affects a handful of adults, but they weren't aware of what was going on with young people and minors, children. Mm -hmm. They weren't aware with even what some of the processes are whether you're talking about the the hormones or the the surgeries and so on because it's all coded as you said in this fuzzy fluffy linguistic language that Mm -hmm. makes it sound far less insidious than it is it makes it sound like it's just some sort of normal totally fine thing so for those who may not be as familiar can you give an overview of 
what it is that you what it is that's actually going on because I, I still don't think people are I still think a lot of people are kind of sleepwalking on this or maybe they just think oh all this doesn't affect me so why should right. I care right and I have felt like a crazy man because I've been on this for five six years now and you're absolutely right that with, it's only been within the last year or two especially within the last year mm-hmm. that the public is finally becoming aware of the extent of the horrors and how systematized this has been within our medical institutions, especially here in the States. You're from the UK, which I think people have been, if they follow this issue at all, they're aware of what's been happening with the Tavistock Clinic and how that has just been ordered to close next year. But yes, in hospitals around this country, around the United States, the first one, the first pediatric gender clinic opened in 2007 up in Boston. And Boston's been recently in the news because of their own videos showing where the doctors, the clinicians themselves at that children's hospital have openly admitted to doing this medicalization, including these invasive surgeries on minors. Mm -hmm. People previously thought, you also said, oh, this is just a few very tightly guarded shrouded in euphemisms, just a few troubled children. We're helping them. They're going to commit suicide if we don't pump them full of hormones or whatever. People are realizing that this is a social contagion, largely influenced by the internet. It's, of course, children are being inculcated with gender dogma in schools. And so that's there's sort of a pipeline that exists where schools indoctrinate children into this nonsensical gender ideology, and they then become convinced that they need to undergo some sort of medicalization. That medicalization is all experimental and it includes blockers, hormone blockers to halt natural normal puberty to then be followed on by synthetic opposite sex hormones. And then perhaps after that, a medically unnecessary body disfiguring surgery to make the body appear as the opposite sex. Sometimes the surgeries are done before hormones. You see young teenage girls getting their breasts amputated. Then there is the genital surgeries, or the bottom surgery, as it's euphemistically called. Those are happening to minors as well, and I can prove it despite the legacy media's protest, you know, saying that they're not. I know the journal citations where doctors have admitted to doing vaginoplasties, for example, on boys as young as 15. Uh, And so there's an entire industry that has arisen around this, uh, both within the counseling and therapeutic settings, but also within hospitals, medical institutions, gender clinics. Planned Parenthood is now a leading provider of this uh, experimental medicalization, especially hormones. They're passing out hormones like candy. You can get testosterone, for example. I know of cases where 30 minutes on a telehealth call and they get testosterone that same day based on a young girl's self-diagnosis that she is transgender. Uh, so I, once you become aware of what's going on, it's just hard to look away because it's quite horrible. And there's nothing quite like hearing from parents and they're just howling, crying because their daughters are now sterile. Um, they're, they're, I mean, or, you know, they've, they've managed to come to believe all within a very short time that they mm. are the opposite sex and they need to be medicalized and the health repercussions are just staggeringly bad. Um, but yes, it's, yeah. as I said, it's one of the worst medical scandals the world has ever seen in my opinion, because it's pursuing a physiological impossibility. It's all based on a lie that a human person can somehow become the opposite sex, which you can. Why do you think that's become something that's considered a controversial view? I mean, what's what's very strange about the time we're living in in many countries, many countries in the modern West, especially in the Anglosphere, mm-hmm. UK, 
USA, Canada, Australia, New Zealand is there's this inversion going on. I always call it the inversion agenda, right? There's this inversion going on where completely normal, sane, ethical, reasonable, common sense views and concerns there there are elements out there and people out there who are trying to paint those as the radical views right. or as the as the harmful views or as the dangerous ones stuff that what's so weird when i have these type of conversations is i'm always just like how is this even a conversation like how's this even a how's this even a thing how has society got into a point where you need to explicitly say that someone you know that men can't give birth or that women don't have penises or that you can't actually yes you can change your appearance and you can you know do surgeries and use hormones and so on but you cannot actually biologically convert from male to female it's it's or vice versa it's it's not possible i feel like everyone knows this everyone but people are so either ideologically captured or just so cowardly that they won't just state the obvious well, I think there are a variety of contributing factors to what you've described. Um, I agree that there is such a massive inversion that has gone on culturally about uh, who, how we understand ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for this, I'll, I have not read the entire book, but I've read portions of it. Um, if, you, if you've seen Matt Walsh's movie, What is a Woman?, he interviews an author, uh, Carl Truman, I believe is his name, and his book mm-hmm. is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Um, As I understand from what I have read in that book, um, he argues, and I'm inclined to agree, that this insanity and the chaos that we now see is rooted from decades ago when people in the Western world, the Anglosphere, moved away from more moral categories and have adopted the shift was toward a psychologized self as I believe he puts it. Mm-hmm. And so we've described ourselves in these highly psychologized terms. And sort of with that, sort of you infuse narcissism into that milieu and you have people identifying as all number of things, even if it's completely divorced from material reality. Um, but the almighty self triumphs. Mm-hmm. And therefore, even when it is at odds with science or <laughs> any kind of natural order, that's that governs the day. Um, and so if that's how you're trained to think, I mean, this revolution in selfhood happened alongside how we, you know, all of these changes within our society to the point where the most you just you can't argue if, if what's at stake is your identity. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty big fight. That's not that's not a fight that anybody can afford to lose. If that's if your entire identity is wrapped up in all of this, um, you you end up with some pretty inverted, <laughs> pretty inverted times. Um, I, as a Christian, I think that there's a spiritual evil that is a part of this, of course. Uh, mm. I I fundamentally understand the world in that way as a professing Christian. Ephesians 6, kind of the backdrop for this, that there's cosmic battle going on between good and evil. Um, the attack against the human body, I think, is can't be ignored. Um, and, you know, Jesus said the love of money is the root of all evil. And so when you dare, as any good journalist should, to follow the money that is behind the medicalization of gender, you find that there are people who stand to profit handsomely from doing these things. And it's that sounds all tinfoil hat conspiratorial, but I've 
done enough of the research to know that, you know, lockers, they're costing thousands of dollars. You, you go on this medicalization, you'll be a lifetime medical patient. So mm-hmm. it behooves us to ask, well, who benefits from this? It's certainly not the people that are going on these drugs because you're opening yourself up to heinous medical complications, the least of which is cardiovascular disease, liver problems, kidney issues, infertility. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. I spoke with a detransitioner not so long ago who I think 18 or 19 years old, she went and got the testosterone injections, caused massive kidney stones mm-hmm. to the point where the endocrinologist who was treating her said that she, He'd never seen someone that young, a young woman who had ever had that many kidney stones. Um, and she's now detransitioning. And uh, the the doctors that are now helping her detransition don't really know what to do, but they're trying to measure her hormone levels and that kind of thing. So <laughs> it's, it's a world of hurt. Um, it is. There's a lot going on. Yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, I have read that book you referred to. I've also had Carl Truman on, on the podcast not so long ago. <laughs> So yes, the age of psychological man. I do recommend that book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, for anyone listening who is curious to know how we uh, ended up in this situation in Western countries. It's a uh, it's a dense read. It's not actually an easy read, um, yeah. but it really goes through the Quite history a lot. of a lot yeah. of these ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's such a weird one. I, I this is this is one topic I've had multiple, you know, I've been speaking about this for for years to varying degrees. It's not my sort of uh main area of focus, but it is just one of those things that is continuously even though I understand the the roots and the history and even the ideology of it far more than most people do and understand the extent to which it's gone, it still continues to blow my mind because you use the term conspiracy theory and it does almost seem like, wait, is this, is this real? Is this really happening? I think if you, you know, if you just were to to speak to someone who's not familiar with all of this and they don't, and they're like, no, that can't be true. That's not, it It sounds too far gone. I've had that exchange many times with people. (laughs) It asked, sounds too far gone. I asked my dad not so long ago, did you ever think you'd live in a country where surgeons will harvest forearm tissue from females to make a simulacrum of a penis? And he never, and he said, never in a million years. I mean, the idea that you would carve up the body in this way, again, in pursuit of an impossibility is just insane. You know, my grid previously for understanding this was, okay, there's a few transvestites as they were once called down in New Orleans at Mardi Gras. You know, I never thought those surgeries were medically ethical, but okay, out of sight, out of mind. You go your whole life without meeting one. They live on the margins of society. Okay, whatever one thinks of medical ethics, it's not really an issue. You start doing this to children? Mm -hmm. No, ma'am, no, sir. No, I won't have that on my conscience and not say anything about it. I mean, could could there be anything more cruel than to confuse and violate the trust of a child about something as basic as their bodies and then pump them full of drugs that then set them up for a lifetime of horrors. I mean, this is the most sadistic abuse I think I've ever seen. Um, yeah, and it's and, and it's all wrapped up. Yeah, yeah and as a Christian, I uh, you know, mm. the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't take too kindly when you hurt children. Yeah, millstones. Yeah, I, was, I was about to say something about a millstone there. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, part of the inversion, though, is that it's all wrapped up in this bow of compassionate language oh, so that yeah. it seems like people like myself or yourself who take an issue with it, particularly when it comes to children, as if, you know, you've got people out there with the, you know, protect, protect trans kids or, uh, you know, saying all this stuff about, oh, well, if you don't support this, then they're going to commit mm-hmm. suicide. Yeah. The whole term gender affirming care. 
Oof. right? It's 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 an inversion. It's not just it's not just a lie, but it's the opposite. It's right. The, it's the opposite. Even the term misgendering. Yeah. Right. It's all used in the opposite sense of what the term would actually mean. If somebody is a male and I refer to a male as he or I refer to a female as she, I'm yeah. accurately gendering that person according to the standard rules of the English language and every other language that I'm even aware of. Um, but they're saying that that is now misgendering, right? That's now you're, you're misgendering that person because they claimed, they made this psychological claim that they want to be this other thing. And it's, it, it's very weird because language is extraordinarily powerful. And yes. I've really learned over the last, I've always known it's powerful, but over the last few years, I've especially learned just how easily people are manipulated by language, right? Yes. If you call a, if you call a double mastectomy, um, a top surgery or gender affirming care, or you call, you know, if, if, if someone actually knows what a phalloplasty is, or you've mm -hmm. even seen images of what is actually being done with the removal right. of, of flesh from the forearm or from the thigh. And that, like, you're talking about Frankenstein type experiments. You're talking about really like yes. brutal, irreversible, traumatic stuff. But they, they use this language that makes it sound like, oh, it's just like a, you know, it's just this very minor thing that's oh, going to make the person happy and it's going to stop them commit. And when you, especially in the Matt Walsh documentary, when you even listen to some of those doctors speaking, they, I don't know if, I'm sure you noticed this as well. They all have this like in, in their eyes and in their smiles and in their, like, it's really creepy. I, yeah. I was watch I was watching it and I was like, man, all of these people seem possessed, right? They seem like they're possessed by yeah. some type of, <laughs> it, it's very, it's weird. I'm just like, this is real on multiple levels. This is strange and there's a clear pattern yeah there's a pattern in the way that they speak and, and in there i'm just like this is creeping me out I, it's funny you say that because i've had full-on secular atheist people say if anything could make me believe in demons <laughs> literally it's dark yeah I mean, it's i mean it's and i've got no problem like believing that obviously i have a, my cosmology i can i have a understanding of the demonic um but even if you don't believe in any of that, it's just not, this is not scientifically accurate. The, the human body has a fundamental integrity to it. Our, all of our systems, our endocrine system, you're, they're intricately connected. And to violate, again, to violate the integrity of the body in pursuit of a physiological impossibility, how that doesn't contravene, even if, even if you're not an expert in medical ethics, how that doesn't just strike someone as just, deeply wrong on a fundamental level just shows how I think dissociated we are from reality. But to your point about language, that's what, that's our very means of communication. That's how we convey reality. Uh, and we at the Christian Post never subscribe to this kind of ideology, but it's, it's so insidious because even when we started reporting on this more deliberately than we were, when this was really exploding in culture, I have to tip my hat to a radical feminist friend who messaged me and she liked an article that we wrote and we reported, but there were still some of these little euphemisms in there. She said, you know, you ought to think about that because mm -hmm. if you employ the phrase transgender woman to refer to a male, even if you don't believe that that person actually is female, you're still conveying, you're, you're using the prefix trans to falsify reality. Mm -hmm. um, because we were not reporting on it in any kind of pro gender identity way, but uh, if 
gender identity is allowed to eclipse sex, you really do damage to the material reality of sex. Uh, and so that's why we refuse to print falsehoods about biology at the Christian Post. We just won't be party to that um, kind of deception. And the, the media, I have often said, is most culpable for the medical scandal that is emerging now because they have used manipulative lingo to cover this up. Because if this is just gender-affirming care, what could possibly be wrong with that? The public has been prevented, um, uh, to borrow a line from Abigail Schreier's substack, we're living behind an epistemological blockade because things are, are, are shrouded in all of these euphemisms and this manipulative language because it, to the reader of a legacy press outlet, nothing seems to be the problem. I had a mom from the West Coast call me. Uh, I think her one of her kids had been impacted by this and she had no idea what was going on because she read the New York Times every day. She thought everything was fine. Mm -hmm. then it hits home and she's like, Oh, now I've got to go read the Christian post <laughs> or the federalist or the other, or the other outlets that will actually say, mm, actually human beings can't change sex. And to convey with our words that you can is horrendous. Mm -hmm. And how big an issue is this in terms of actual numbers and in terms of growth? Because even still on a, on a day-to-day -day basis, I see this stuff. I see it online in the real world, whether I'm in the US or UK or anywhere, I'm not, I'm not really seeing it. It looks on the surface level. If you just go out day to day yeah. and see, you know, it just looks like, okay, you know, everything's fine. Parents are being parents, kids are being kids. I'm not seeing um, a lot of gender confusion in the day to day or anything like that. But then you go online and you see certain things or you look at certain numbers and it's like, whoa, okay, this is a this is a, a rapidly growing issue. But can you frame some some numbers or some data around this so people understand the extent of it? Well, good data is hard to find, and that to me is itself a medical scandal because this mm -hmm. is all experimental. What we do know, um, and before I talk about the United States, I'll mention the UK because the UK has the NHS centralized medical system, you can see the numbers more easily. Uh, you probably know that the group Transgender Trend documented, I think, from 2009 to 2019, there was about a decade long, approximately 10 years, where there was a 4,000, over 4,000 percent increase in the referrals to the Gender Identity Development Service uh, for girls in that very short span of time. That's enormous. That's an enormous jump from... I mean, what the, the figure used to be one in 100,000 and for boys and one in 300,000 for girls. And so now I've seen figures where it's like one in 20 mm. young girls and are identifying as something other than their biological sex. Um, and so how many are going on hormones and uh, surgeries? That's, that's a different question. In the U.S., again, because as I was saying a moment ago, you can on a self-diagnosis basis, go into a Planned Parenthood and get hormones today. And you don't, so in terms of tracking a lot of this, we, and complicated by the fact that we have 50 different states, 50 different medical systems. I don't know how each public health system tabulates any of these numbers, but because you don't need an official diagnosis, who knows how many people are acquiring hormones? 
that's scary enough. But what I can tell you is that from 2016 to 2017, the number of girls, young women, and I think this would include minor girls, according to the American Society for Plastic Surgeons, from 2016 to 2017, the number quadrupled for gender surgeries. Mm. Uh, boys, it's also been a jump. Uh, even, uh, even during COVID lockdowns in 2020, these surgeries were going on full speed ahead. There was a jump from 2019 to 2020, according to the chart that I saw from that same uh, Society for Plastic Surgeons, gender dysphoria surgeries. Um, my feeling, though, on it, Zuby, is that one is too many. This yes. is not ethical to do to any child, certainly, but I am not. And some people say, I let adults do what they want. Well, I, I take the view that the best thing to do for someone who's truly suffering from a discordance with their biological sex is to help them to accept their bodies as they are as male mm -hmm. or female. You, there's many ways to express your masculinity and your femininity. If a boy likes the arts instead of mechanics. Great. If a girl wants to be an engineer or is a tomboy or prefers stereotypically manly things, she can still express herself as a female. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but you don't do medicine in service to stereotypes and to cut off physically healthy body parts, I think ought to be, unconscionable it is unconscionable to me and mm. certainly not by any solid ethical standards that i would recognize yeah i mean expanding that out to a wider issue i think in a very interesting question and i don't i don't know the answer to this but i think a very interesting question is how far you know like what are the ethical boundaries of science and technology and medicine mm -hmm. right i think we would both absolutely agree that just because something can be done right mm -hmm. just because a, a technology or a medical procedure or surgery is, is possible that doesn't mean that it's um that it's good or it's ethical and i think a big question we have for you know that we're going to be having in, in our countries and i guess we're already having and it go it's going to go far beyond this issue i believe which is just you know what are the ethical and moral bounds of what should even be pursued with science because some of these questions some of these issues you know a hundred years ago it wasn't even, it wasn't even possible right we didn't have we didn't have the technology we didn't have medical technology for some of the things that are now happening to even be feasible so it was it wasn't an ethical question and quandary because well, it's not you can't even envision the possibility and i think that's going to go on so while i i very much empathize with the the position of an adult generally speaking, mm -hmm. right. being able to do what they want uh, that's not hurting, you know, directly impacting other people. Even with that, it's like, well, you know, what's the what's the boundary? What's the boundary there? And if you're getting other people involved, right, you're, you've got doctors, right. you've got people in the medical profession. You know, I'm from a family with a, a lot of doctors in it. My dad's a doctor. My brother's a doctor. I've got lots of doctors in my family. Um, the, the role of a doctor is supposed to be, you know, you, you, you have ethical boundaries on what you do and what you don't do. If, if you're a surgeon and someone just comes in and says, you know, I just want my, I want my, I want both my legs amputated. Right. And there's, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with their legs and right. they're totally fine. They're, All right. I'll give you, I'll give you a million dollars to do it. Yeah. Right. I would say that an ethical doctor should say no, right? And an ethical doctor should not be doing things that are medically harmful and that are going to, you know, disable someone, take away a basic bodily function from them. 
completely unnecessarily, right? If you have a cancer, if you have a cancer in in breast tissue and a mastectomy needs to be performed to get rid of the cancer, that's not the same as just removing completely healthy organs. So I, I don't know. I don't even know exactly what the answer is, but I think these are going to become bigger and bigger questions as technology advances. Well, for those who might be inclined to think, well, let just adults do what they want. I would ask them, what do you say to adult detransitioners who have lived through these surgeries? They were allowed to do it. They made their, their brains are fully developed past, you know, beyond age 25. That's generally when the lobes of the brain finish forming. And so you're not exploiting a minor. You're, you're, this is an adult making a decision. I interviewed a detransitioner who underwent an orchiectomy in his 30s. What's thinking, that? An orchiectomy, that's the amputation of his testicles. Oh, okay. And he, he thought that that was going to help his problems. And the gender clinicians, according to him, and I examined his medical records, he was legit, corroborated his story with a few others who knew him. And that poor man, um, it, he, he, the gender clinicians, according to him, never used biologically accurate terms for his body. Because again, we're talking with the manipulation of language. He was assured that this hormones and these surgeries are not going to affect how you look, feel, or function. And he's, he's thinking, well, maybe the surgery is actually going to help me feel better. He's getting off hormones. So they finally, and he described it as a multi-level marketing upsell. He was enticed into this surgery. So he underwent it. Um, and it did not help his problems. About a year later, he winds up with regret because he's got a scrotum that looks like a chicken's neck and a deflated balloon. And then he tries to have sex and he ejaculates blood. Ooh. And then it finally occurs to him that, yeah, maybe this wasn't so, such a good idea. So if we say, well, I'll let adults do what they want. Like, are, are you allowing, are you willing to allow someone to go through that? Mm -hmm. How do you know that they won't regret this years down the road? How do you know that? Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, are there people who say that they don't regret their surgeries? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Still doesn't make it an ethical thing to do. Yeah. This see, this is the this is the quandary here because if we are being if we're being honest, of course there are people who do go through. I mean, I don't know what percentage. Right. And we it's it's probably not even possible to get accurate data on what no. percentage of people who go yeah. through this regret it or who want to detransition but it certainly appears that there are people who go through it all and are and are happy with it i know people um, yeah. i know a handful not not a huge number but i know a handful of people who have gone through so-called gender transition and mm -hmm. they maintain that that was the best thing for them in some cases they did it more than a decade ago and they're they're happy with it they're living their lives they're not having gigantic medical issues and so on and so i think you know yeah. on the on the flip side yeah on on the flip side of it um you know there are people there are many people like that who would then say well you know who are who are you to say that i should not have been allowed to do that because in, in their case you know there are absolutely situations where people are just rushed into it. People are just rushed in, they're scammed, they're, you know, not, as you said, they're not even using the language properly, they're not talking about potential right. long-term consequences and things, but there are also situations where someone's really been through a multi-year yeah. process as an adult, they've had lots mm -hmm. and lots of time to think about it. Do I, do I quote unquote get it? Do I understand? It? No, I don't, I don't understand it. And I'm never going to know exactly how that person 
felt before or now, but it certainly appears like, and those individuals would say, hey, this was this was the best thing for me. It's all very subjective though. I mean, we don't, I mean, if once you open the door mm-hmm. to saying that it is sometimes okay to physically amputate a body part that will impede the integrity of the organism, the uh, whole functioning human body. Once you open that door to say that that is sometimes okay, it's, you know, people say, don't make the slippery soap fallacy. We're cutting off the breasts of 13 year old girls now. I mean, that's where this leads. Mm -hmm. So you, even if you have this very, very tight process, it's like you've still opened the door to the principle that has made this, uh, (laughs) made this an acceptable practice. And I think we owe it to our society to ask these you know, first principle kind of questions. Do we think it is actually moral and ethical to amputate a physically healthy organ just because? Mm-hmm. What? Because the suicide lie line that is that is fed and it's used as a manipulative threat, especially for parents who are dealing with with their minor children, but even in their adult children too, is that if you don't allow your child to do this, they will wind up dead by suicide. And so parents just freeze in a state of mm-hmm. panic and fear. But the suicide is always a very complicated question. There are so many factors that, that go into that. And there is no way you can definitively prove that unless you cut a body part off, that suicide will be prevented. You, there's no way you can verify that claim. If, and if anything, you can more likely verify the obvious, the, the opposite. Right. Because, and the famous because, Sweden is, I think, proof of that, where they actually followed for 30 years mm-hmm. the post-operative, what were then known as transsexuals from, I believe, 1973 to 2003 in a very accepting society where they had, I think, a 19 times higher rate hazard of completed suicide, completed suicide against population match controls. Mm. Well, all throughout history, if you'd always secretly had these trans kids hiding everywhere, then they would have been committing suicide all throughout history because these so-called transitions were not even possible until very recently. Absolutely. And here's the other thing that I've just never been able to get over this. Um, I'm not yet married or have kids yet, but I hope to one day. And if I'm not, I hope to adopt. If I'm not able to have kids with my wife, future wife, I would love to be able to adopt kids. But the fact that the combination of blockers and cross-sex hormone renders a child sterile. Mm-hmm. Huge. Uh, how in the world do you get, I mean, sterilizing. I think, I think that's the goal, by the way. Well, and. and people on my conspiracy theory. No, I, I, I run in, the goal. here in the United States, black people get it. Uh, I would imagine they, 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 they can, as one, I know a black left-wing journalist who is totally opposed to this madness. And she has once said, we can smell the eugenics train rolling into town. We can see it coming. And so that's why they're not down on this is mostly, I mean, are there racial minorities who are getting mired in this? Yes, some, but this is mostly a very white problem here in the United States. It's these very wealthy upper middle class white kids who are getting lured into this, but you know, others as well. Uh, they, these clinics will get their paws on any kind of child who they can send down this pathway. But you know, the, the idea that how that doesn't just ring the alarm bells internally for people, particularly in the United States where we have a sordid history of experimentation on people where they were rendered sterile. Mm-hmm. 
just because there's a pink and blue flag, you know, waving in the background doesn't make that a medically sound practice. Yeah. You, to say the least, that's just one, one effect of it, the sterility thing. There's cardiovascular, I mean, many health effects that this, the combination of these drugs mm. cause in a person. What What are your thoughts on, and this is, this is slightly, it's, it's slightly outside the issue, but based on the, the conversation we were, we were just having there. What about other forms of body modification that people hmm. do? Because pe- because people do all sorts of right. nutty. Pe- I've, I've seen some real nutty body modifications from people, like putting uh, holes in their cheeks to right. massive things in their ears, to splitting their tongues, to putting you know spikes and all sorts. Like people have yeah. do some people do do some very weird weird stuff. Um, and again, I, I, I ask that same question when it comes to, I, I think children, boom, hard line, right? Yeah. Children, hard line, no question to me. Um, when it comes to adults and some, even people who do these like crazy, like psychotic boob jobs, not like a normal boob job, but one where they, they've got some giant watermelon, right? I mean, again, should a doctor, should a doctor do that? And also, um, you know, if that's really what somebody wants, is it you know should you, you, you see what i mean it's a yes. it's a weird one i feel i feel like the slippery slope kind of kind of runs runs in two directions because mm-hmm. i am as much as i am uh you know i'm 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 a christian and i have mm-hmm. certainly by western standards relatively conservative values right. on most things and i don't think that just because something can be done that it's good or it should be done um but I'm also cautious of wanting to uh, ban and create laws around everything that I right. disapprove of mm-hmm. or everything right. that could be right. could be harmful. Because then, you know, there's very reasonable logical arguments to ban <clears throat> cigarettes, ban alcohol, mm-hmm. ban this, ban that. Mm-hmm. And so with those situations, I'm like, okay, I might think that's goofy. I might think it's harmful. I might even think I think I think it's foolish to do certain things. But should it be? that you're absolutely not allowed to do it. You see what I mean? I, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a tricky sure. one there. Right? No. I, and I think that that's, these are questions that when it comes to lawmaking, these are questions that we have to hash out and, you know, not, I I'm tracking with you there. Uh, I would also agree with your line there about the slippery slope going in a number of directions, because I think it can be argued that these radical body modification practices, whether you're talking about very large piercings or spikes through your, <laughs> your flesh or those other kinds of things. But then you get down to the subtle ones. Um, for me, I think the line that I think is prudent to draw is that, is it going to impede the function of the body? I mean, a little is, are you going to radically inhibit your body from functioning as it ought to function? If that's if a non-religious you know, theological line, but is that if you recognize the fundamental dignity and integrity to the human body, mm-hmm. then I think it, you know, it's, you're not going to impede the function of your body if you get an unsightly mole removed, or there's, there's a place for, you know, plastic surgery that I think can improve the body. And mm-hmm. there, there's there obviously some, some dicey lines there, but with this gender, stuff. 
you're doing so to lie about your sex and you're impeding the function of the body. If you remove your breasts, you will not be able to breastfeed later in life. So it's not just you're hacking off, you know, fatty tissue and it's like, no, there's your milk ducts are gone. You will not, there are, there are functions of your body that will not be there after you undergo this. And, and, and again, the difference between a mastectomy for, it, it becomes an ethical thing to remove that body per body part if there's a cancerous mass there, because you're trying, the intent matters. You're trying to preserve the health of an individual. This, this idea though, that for a psychological condition of gender dysphoria, as opposed to a physical disease like cancer, you don't cut the body to heal the mind. Mm. You're not going to alleviate a mental distress, certainly not in the long term. There's, there's a certain euphoria that happens in the months after a surgery, as many trans-identified people will tell you. They felt like this was this great, the best thing that ever happened to them. Then just give it a little time, and they realize that they made an, a horrible mistake. Mm-hmm. And more and more of these people are putting their heads above the parapet now and saying, please, especially not as a minor, don't do this, please don't do this. I mean, Chloe Cole, uh, you've probably seen her online. She's going, all right, well, she, at 13, she was gender dysphoric, went on blockers early, I think had the mastectomy at 15. And then a year later at 16, she's got regret. And now she's 18 and she's traveling. Like these things never should have been allowed. Um, But it does speak to the very larger phenomenon. And I, I think this is probably the case as Western society has become increasingly decreasingly religious, religiously observant that we've lost a right kind of reverential regard for the body. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think that that is, um, I interviewed, I mentioned Abigail Schreier a moment ago, her Substack line, but she told me when I interviewed her about her book, Irreversible Damage, I said, do you think that the collapse in religious practice is a contributing factor for the breakdown of medical ethics? And she said to me, and I've never forgotten it, she said that when you have a society that practices a robust faith, religious practice, it provides, it confers on society a kind of herd immunity from moral stupidity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's exactly right. That we, when you lose sight of the higher things, not to say that there aren't really ethical atheists. I know them. I'm friends with them. I respect them. They're very, they're awesome. I, you know, God bless them. Even though they don't believe in God, I, you know, <laughs> applause from me. You don't have to be, you can be a decent person and not believe in God. But I do think that as society has moved away from an understanding that we are, as it says in Psalm 139, fearfully and wonderfully made, that we are made in God's image that you're not going to desecrate something that you have a reverence for. And I think as we have moved away from that, and I understand why some people abandon their faith, if they're abused in a church, it totally makes sense to me that they don't know how to disentangle God's loving character from a really abusive church. I want to- Human actions, yeah. I totally understand that and have grace for people. But as our moral categories change, we lose the kind of reverential regard for the body that I think our society should have. And then you wind up, then you wind up desecrating the human body, causing a world of hurt for people. And I hear from atheists all the time that they tell me they can't believe they're reading the Christian post or listening to a Christian post podcast because they never thought something like this could happen to their family. And mm-hmm. they'll talk to anyone, Republican, Democrat, Christian, atheist, who will tell the truth. Because yes. uh, the truth is true no matter who says it. Absolutely. Well, I think in, um, 
in a once a society becomes highly highly secularized mm-hmm. then they're outside of outside of theft and physical violence right physical aggressive violence there's only a handful of sins one of them is lack of consent one of them is judgment mm-hmm. and the other is anything that could be deemed intolerance and this is something that i've worked out right we're, we're yeah. living in a time where those those three things are considered the greatest sins perhaps alongside um you know offending offending somebody you know verbally offending somebody right. but that's what it is so it it, it 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 narrows it down to okay well is it is it consensual if it's consensual then it's fine it doesn't matter what it is right the only the only line is consent and then if you have a judgment if you think that something is bad or you are intolerant of something that is considered a greater sin than what is actually happening right the thing you're actually judging the thing you're actually intolerant of if it's you know it could be a heinous thing like what we're talking about with regards to minors here but then that's like oh well you know you're being judgy you're being judgmental as if that itself is is the great sin and that's some that's a trend i've noticed over the last decade or so where it's like okay is the only issue something you know not being consensual or or why is it deemed worse to judge something if someone does something that is you believe is immoral or unethical and you are vocally judgmental of that or you say that it's wrong you'll people will come harder at you for saying that it's wrong than for the person doing the thing that is generally deemed to be wrong and that that's a no, an interesting change in how i'm noticing people are sort of making their moral value judgments i i agree and while i certainly want to recognize the importance of say the age of consent like con- oh, of course, consent, of course. consent is consent is a necessary standard oh absolutely but, but it's not the only one <laughs> on, on the whole it's a garbage standard it can't be the only standard it can't be the only and one yeah. the example that i often think about in this and it's not it's a little bit off topic here but when it comes to the sex trade this idea that oh you can consent to sex if you just if, but there's money that's exchanged so even the consent factor doesn't totally undermines are you really consenting here or when you're entering into sort of some kind of prostitution arrangement or sex work as the euphemism, again, with the euphemisms, euphemisms. are you really consenting here or is there another power dynamic at play? Because then you have an entire industry that's trying to uh, legalize this sexual exploitation, but you're talking about, well, if they consent to it, it's fine. It's like, no, Mm -hmm. you don't get to, you know, pay someone to rape them because we know that this wouldn't happen, but for the money Mm -hmm. that, I mean, so, do yeah. you know something very interesting? Uh, I, maybe maybe you've seen this over the years, and it's actually something I predicted many years ago, and uh, I'm seeing it coming to fruition, which is that a lot of old school, or some may call them radical feminists, mm-hmm. on several issues, I've noticed right. that they end up reaching the same conclusions as right. more conservative or mm-hmm. religious people, just with right. many more steps so I'm seeing this emerging strange alliance happening between people who are more traditionally conservative, whether they're religious or not, mm-hmm. and not the not the progressive, super sex positive type feminists. Um, who the radical feminists would say that's not feminist. 
Yeah. 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 But the, but the more radical ones who, you know, number one, absolutely recognize that males and females exist as distinct categories and are different. But even when it comes to things like pornography or Mm -hmm. uh, prostitution or um, surrogacy, some, yeah, some, lots of these issues, even though the epistemology of how they reach there might be different, I've found that they actually end up often reaching the same conclusions as people who maybe 10 or 20 years ago they thought were diametrically opposed to them. And I think that's interesting. Oh, it's fascinating. And I've, I've learned a lot from radical feminists that I've gotten to know in this space. But I, And I knew about that many of them had opposed pornography and prostitution before. But um, I think it's, I mean, look, as a Christian who's conservative leaning, I think I need to, you know, work toward good ends no matter what. And so yes. I'm happy to converse and express, extend goodwill to anybody. And I, I think surrogacy, prostitution, pornography are scourges. And so it's incumbent upon anybody who thinks as much to reach out and to be willing to speak and converse with people. I, it's, been, it's been an interesting experience hearing because some radical feminists have religious backgrounds and mm-hmm. hearing stories of being really mistreated in churches. Um, gosh, it just breaks my heart because I believe... God is love. And, you know, my faith is very important to me. And the Lord Jesus Christ elevated women and treated women with dignity. And I think many conservative leaning Christian men think as much, but then there are some really narcissistic abusive types in those circles too. And many radical feminists have experiences with those. Uh, But look, again, the truth is true no matter who says it. And so however, Mm -hmm. however, however many steps it takes you to wind up, I think they, um, the epistemology, the the journey of getting there is different, but I'll speak with anyone. I mean, I, oh, absolutely. I think it's if you want to talk about how pornography is so destructive, how prostitution is monstrously exploitative, how surrogacy is a human rights violation. I'm all ears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I just think it's interesting how um, how how there's this convergence mm-hmm. that is uh, that's happening on on various issues, which I don't think somebody would have predicted 15 or, or 20 years ago. I mean, I'm no. not saying, I mean, I, I, this is a, I've done over 200 podcasts at this, at this point. I've had, um, I've had uh, Posey Parker, Kelly J. Keen on. Yeah. I've had uh, Megan Murphy has been mm-hmm. on my podcast I know twice. I've yeah. had uh, Sal Grover from mm-hmm. Australia. So I, I mean, I'm, I'm the same man. I'm, I'm intellectually curious. I want to talk to everybody. I'm not a, you know, I'm not, I have my I have my beliefs and my positions, but I always seek to understand other people. Ultimately, I'm trying to get to the truth. I'm trying to understand the world. I'm trying to understand people in the world. There's eight eight billion of us. We're all going to have our differences and disagreements. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important that at a minimum, we can at least try to understand each other. And then we can, you know, try to find the points of agreement, try to find the through lines and also just be civil and decent towards each other. I, I don't like, um, I think on multiple levels, it does seem like, you know, the, especially in the USA, people are very fractured and divided. I would say beyond what is reasonable. I think there's a reasonable level of division and polarization. And then there's a level where it becomes, you know, the, the temperature gets so high that it's concerning where, you know, it could result in physical violence or it could result in, family and friendship groups, you know, completely breaking apart and a country not, you know, it's supposed to be the United States of America, not the divided States of America. So whilst people will have their differences, it's important that there still is some uh, overall vision. 
Totally agree. It's and these these conversations between groups that are you know at odds. I mean, there's plenty that conservative leaning Christians and radical feminists disagree on, to say the least. Sure. But there's there's deeper anthropological questions about what is the human body, what does it mean to be human, the the teleological you know aspects of you know our bodies have a telos. What do they point to? What are they for? Those are very hard questions to ask uh, and to engage in. But I, you know, look at the end of the day, I, I, what I've noticed, I've seen some conservative Christian men like to blame feminism for a lot of this, where we've got here. And I've heard some interesting arguments about Simone de Beauvoir and existential oh, yes. philosophy and that sort of, so the seeds and sort of whatever the case may be, however we wound up to this precarious place where <laughs> it's a very toxic culture is that I, as a Christian want to represent Christ well. And even though that's not, you know, sometimes that really triggers people because of their painful experiences with religion. Um, I'm going to have a conversation and try to establish rapport and goodwill earnestly um, because I know I, I don't want to see young women harmed by this. I really don't, especially with this trans stuff. Is there could there any could there be anything more misogynistic and cruel? Mm-hmm. Tell a girl that her body is wrong, um, and the pornography feeds into this trans stuff too. Because the, I mean, I, I despise pornography, but the stuff today, and I don't watch it, but I know it's out there. Is this gnarly, choking, violent, horrific kind of pornography to the point where? Uh, I hate to be so graphic, but there's British medical journals I've seen where girls have internal damage to their bowels because of this kind of brutal stuff that their boyfriends are doing to them. But they've seen this in porn. And so girls now are trying by way of a transgender identity escape this stuff. (laughs) I mean, who, who wouldn't want to escape being an object of, you know, perverted male sexual gratification. Just think yeah. about what it's like for young girls who grow up in this trashy environment where they have to endure the male gaze and these these young boys are looking at really raunchy smut and mm-hmm. they're then being objectified. I mean, God forgive us. I mean, what our girls are do are enduring is just terrible. Um, and so I, I, look, you're not going to see me, even if I strongly disagree with feminists on some things and I do, they have a point. <laughs> agreed. Oh, I, I yeah. Agreed. Es- especially now, especially yeah. now. I mean, at, at this point, um, but I, th- I think something that gets confused with that term itself with feminist feminism or feminists is that there is this bifurcation mm-hmm. where you have got, I don't know whether they're called liberal or progressive feminists or fourth wave feminists or you know, and then you have the, the the radical feminists or the gender critical feminists, whatever. And they have they're pretty diametrically opposed mm-hmm. on things from even you know what even is a woman, right? right? Because one side is the former are you know the trans women are women types mm-hmm. who want to who are including males into the feminism and claiming yo it's just a gen it's just a social construct and it, it, it's a it's a very different even though they're both called they'll both call themselves feminists, but actually their the meanings are very different. So I think that's why a lot of lay people who don't study this and don't read into it and, and you know, write articles about it are quick to blame it on feminism. Cause I think mm-hmm. they're talking about that former group mm-hmm. um, that 
they themselves are including males in the female definition. So they're like, well, you know, they're the ones doing it. And they're the ones, you know, who are very pro sex work and pro pornography. And, you know, they call themselves sex positive and this and that. Um, so it's really two separate groups with the same title. And I think that confuses things. Again, with the euphemisms, how can you be possibly be sex positive and support paid rape? <laughs> how is how is yeah. rape sex positive i mean what even is i mean i'm not look i think sexual sexual sexuality is a wonderful things the song of solomon it is a beautiful it's it's celebrated it's how we all got it's how we all exist it's how we you got know, hey it's wonderful i you know one the idea <laughs> i i think christians are sex positive in its truest yeah. form we we People just don't know what they have. A lot of mm. church people have, I mean, I don't know. There, I have this big, long theory as to why I think there has been so much shame attached to sexuality within the church. Um, the sexual revolution, I think, has really put churches on the defensive. Um, and in some ways, because I, I think it's a scourge. I think it's one of the worst things that happened to our society. And it's curious to me to see, talking about that overlap, Louise Perry in the UK, who's got her book out now. And she was saying, I, I watched an interview she did on, I think it's trigonometry podcast, and I was just clapping right along, like <laughs> you're getting it. This is great um, yeah. because it, it's tremendously destructive to women, but it's destructive as a whole because it crushes marriage and family, and that's the the building block of our society. If that is destroyed, there won't be a society to preserve. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that, but I think there's been a pendulum swing in many churches where churches have responded very moralistically to the sexual revolution, and while I certainly believe in sexual morality as defined by my faith, but there's so much more to sexuality than just its moral dimension. The dimension's important, but Mm. there's more to it than that. And so I think the pendulum has now swung back. And so hopefully we'll get to this kind of happy medium, I guess you might say, but where Christians have a more robust understanding of uh, a biblically accurate anthropology where we can communicate the beauty of what we believe, not in these harsh moralistic terms, but again, without ignoring the moral dimensions too. Uh, yeah. how to do both. Um, because I think the world's crying out for that um, amid the ashes of what we have become while we are desecrating the human body and exploiting people right and left sexually. It's beyond time for a course correction. I hear that. Maybe some of those old ideas are not uh, are not all bad ideas. Who would have thought? Pretty good. <laughs> Brandon, it's been a, an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Where can people find you online? All of my reporting is at thechristianpost.com, but I would really urge everyone to go check out our new podcast series. It's a five-part investigative podcast series called Generation Indoctrination Inside the Transgender Battle. It's on Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. We did a comprehensive look at this issue from the medical standpoint, the philosophical standpoint, the legal standpoint, and we explored how this has infected the schools. And then we speak to a detransitioner there at the end and explore a few other interesting angles. Broad variety of contributors. I would urge everyone to take a, check that out. Um, I'm also in Tucker Carlson's documentary called Transgressive, The Cult of Confusion, and that's available now on Fox Nation. And I'm going to continue making some noise in relevant spaces. So christianpost.com is where you can find all of our print stuff. Fantastic. Brandon Showalter, thanks for coming on Real Talk with Zuby. Appreciate you. Pleasure. Thank you. 
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.